We're glad that you're here. We're all alive. Nobody died here this week, right? (laughs) Oh, goodness. Let's give thanks together, shall we? Lord, you are so good to us. Your mercies endure forever. Your truth to all generations. We appreciate so much your mercies, your kindness, your grace, your blessings upon us. What a wonderful and awesome God you are. We give you glory tonight. We love you, Lord. We don't tell you as often or sincerely as we should, but we love you. We thank you. We bless your name tonight. We're grateful for your word. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Please help us, Lord, as the psalmist say, help us to hide your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Grant that we would see and understand your word and then have the desire as you supply the grace that is needed for us to follow through. And do what your word teaches. Help us, we pray. Open our eyes tonight. Give us understanding and illumination. We'll be grateful and enriched as a result. Thank you, Lord. Amen. The book of James. I can't ever remember seeing a Bible study where before we started, people were sitting around doing research and trying to trying to put the... Put it all together before we got started. I love it. That's good. That's encouraging. Well, tonight as we begin, and probably a significant portion of our time together will be spent on what you see on the screen there, filling in the blanks and talking about the author, the one who wrote this epistle, that we refer to as the book of James. Um, all of you know already, I've heard some of you talking already, trying to put this together. There's more than one James in the New Testament. We're going to look at those that are mentioned tonight. Give me another name that there are multiple uses of that name. In other words, not like Jesus and then Jesus and then Jesus and then Jesus, but Different people referred to by a particular name in the New Testament. Other examples other than James. Judas. Judas, We're going to see that tonight. Absolutely. Uh, Who else? Joseph of Arimathea and Joseph, the father of Jesus. Okay. Um, Can you think of any more? Mary. Mary. Oh, yeah. Boy, there was a bunch of Marys. In the New Testament, sure was. Uh, anybody else come up with one? John, yeah, that's another common name. So I, I thought it might be worthwhile to mention that because I believe it was last Wednesday night. I think it was. No, we didn't talk about James last Wednesday night. At some point we talked, oh it, yeah it was, it was the name Jesus. We talked about how Jesus was a common name. Jesus the Christ was certainly not the only Jesus around. There was a lot of Jesuses around. 
And there's, there's a lot of James here. There's a lot of Marys. There's multiple Judases. As a matter of fact, it might, it might shock you to know that two of the twelve disciples were Judas. Two of them. Not just one. One betrayed the Lord, but there was another one besides him. It's Judas and Jude. It's the same name. It's the way it's, the way it's translated. So we're the two of them. So uh, it's interesting that the names that we read in the New Testament, they are so, they're common names for the most part. And so tonight, as we understand who wrote the book of James, I thought it would be helpful for us to look at the um, individuals in the New Testament who were named James. So if you have your Bibles, you might follow along with me. And um, Ashley, did you come sit here on the front tonight so you could help me? Oh, okay. Thank you. We're going to let you, you can, you can be seated, but you can fill in the blanks as we get to them, okay? Yeah, they're going to be real hard. <laughs> but we're going to be nice. We'll help you. Okay? Um, let's turn to Matthew chapter 4, verse 21. Matthew 4, verse 21. In this passage, um, it is a, a list of where Jesus is calling some of his first disciples. In this case, it was Peter and Andrew, James and John. But we're going to read verse 21. Matthew 4, 21, where the Bible says, Going on from there, that is, after he called them by the sea. Verse 21, Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their, fa- and their father, left the boat and their father, and followed him. So, on the first line up there, James, one of the ones we read about is James, the son of Zebedee. Z-E-B-E-D-E-E. That sounds like a song, doesn't it? Zebedee. And you might just put up there uh, Matthew MT 421, please. So we can remember that. So... Now, Zebedee, uh, James is the son of Zebedee, but our, our James that we're referring to here, what's really important here is that James was a, what? A disciple? Is that what it was? Is that what y'all said? I heard disciple or a pull or something at the end. I didn't get it all. Disciple? Is that what somebody said? So James was a disciple. Later an apostle when the Lord brought them together and chose them officially and named them. But James, uh, this James was a disciple and later an apostle uh, that the Lord chose here. James, the son of Zebedee. Now, um, let's turn to Acts chapter 12, verse 2. If somebody finds that, go ahead and read it for me. Acts chapter 12, verse 2, and we're going to find out what happened to this James. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Okay. So, now we just read where it was James and John, the son of Zebedee, right? And he was a disciple. 
and they were apostles. And Brother Ron just read for us that James was killed with the sword, had his head cut off. He was the, he was the first apostle to be martyred. So, um, if you don't mind, Ashley, just write sword uh, somewhere under there so we'll know that how he died. Anywhere you want around James, there'll be fine. Doesn't matter. Yeah, Acts 12, 2. Where this James, that was an apostle, a disciple of the Lord, one of the twelve, was killed with the sword. He was the first apostle to die. And he's identified plainly there. Right? James, the brother of John. So we know we've got the right one. Now, the next one we're going to read about is in Matthew 10, verse 3. Matthew 10, verse 3. Man, this is so cool. Everybody's got a Bible. I know it, but you don't see that very often, I'm telling you. This is amazing. I don't think I've ever seen this before. Literally. That's that's great. Okay. Matthew 10, verse 3. Somebody read that for me. Okay, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> Very good. You did a good job there, Tony. Thank you. So, I want you to notice now, in this case, we're talking about a different James. And this is James, the son of who? Alphaeus. Okay. He is also called something else in Mark 15, verse 40. Whoever finds that, read it for us. Mark 15, verse 40. Okay, this was James the who? The less. Okay. If we were going to say that in, in our vernacular in English, what would we probably say? James. Little James. <laughs> <laughs> so it would appear then to us by reading that, that probably this James was a bigger guy. And this James, because there were two of them, gained the, the title Little James. That makes sense? Because if you got two James in the same group of 12... You, you have to differentiate somehow. That would make sense. So this is James the Less, James the son of Alphaeus. And you might write Less out there, Ashley, if you don't mind, so that we'll know who that is. So we're, we've already read two prominent individuals in the Bible who are named James. And both of them disciples, by the way. So there were two Jameses and two Judases in the twelve. Isn't that interesting? Now, the next one we're going to look at, uh, we're going to read this in, um, let's see, 
the list of 12 disciples in Luke 16, 16. Let's start there. And that's not right. Luke 6, oh, suit Luke 6, 16. I'm imagining the numbers that aren't there. I'll tell you what, let's, I'm going to start at verse 12 and read through that. And, and you'll notice what we're, what we want to get to as we get down to a bit, to the bottom here. Now it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles, Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, who we just talked about, and Simon called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. So there's the two Judases named there. And if you'll notice, the only reason we have this one on the board is because this particular disciple named Judas, Judas, the son of James. So it was the father of an apostle this time. Well, that was named James. What we're just demonstrating here is that there were several men in Scripture named James. So this disciple, that name was Judas. He was not Judas Iscariot, but the other one. His father's name was James. Now, if you, um, if you, anybody reading King James Version? Brother, exactly. The King James Version says brother, but practically all the others have picked up on on the nuances there and recognize that it's actually the son of James. So I just wanted to clarify that because you all, some were probably wondering, obviously. Okay? In italics. Was it? What does it mean when you see a word? Thank you for bringing that up because I hadn't seen that. Uh, if a word is in italics in the Scripture, what does it mean? It means it's been added by translators. It wasn't there originally, but to help clarify our understanding, it was added to help us. Well, sometimes when we give explanations, just like me, sometimes my explanations are more confusing than they are helpful, right? So <laughs> sometimes to put something in italics may be misleading uh, because it wasn't actually there in the original. But the other, the other uh, paraphrases and translations and versions have picked up on that, the son of James. And now we come to the, uh, well, one other thing I want to mention in John fourteen twenty two, to uh, demonstrate this thing about the difference in the Judases there. John fourteen twenty two. If somebody gets that, go ahead and read it before I get to it. Okay, so Judas made a statement here, asked a question to Jesus, but it wasn't Judas that scared it. It was the other Judas. So there were two Judases, two Jameses, and um, I, I just find that very interesting. 
So now we're going to move on to the one that we're really wanting to focus our attention on tonight. And we'll start again in Matthew 13, verses 55 and 56. This is the, the James that, that we're going to focus on. Matthew 13, 55 and 56. Okay, somebody summarize what was just read, if you would. He had brothers named James. Who did? Jesus. Okay, Jesus. Jesus had a brother named James, so we're going to say James, the brother of Jesus. But is James the only brother that Jesus had? No, not it wasn't. He had other brothers, absolutely. Uh, actually, there was um, another Judas there, or Jude, right, that wrote the book of Jude. And when you read the book of Jude, you'll see Jude, and he mentions the brother of James. So he puts the two together. Uh, when, when we get to Jude, we may reference that again, but we won't spend this much time trying to nail that down. But James, the brother of our Lord. Uh, what else do you notice in that passage that's, that, that's interesting? James, the brother of our Lord, or brothers he had, he also had sisters. sisters. Had brothers and sisters. Now, does anybody know why this would be important? Um, in the larger, let's, let's put it this way, in the, in the religious world of today, um, in what is loosely called Christendom, people who are Christians. Why is this a notable thing to mention, that Jesus had brothers and sisters? Well, I think a lot of people tend to think since he was, he was an only child, but he wasn't, because he does have human brothers and sisters. Mary and Joseph had other children. Right. Just, you know, well, I think it much, you know, it's kind of like he had a family, and he had brothers and sisters, and he knew what it was like to grow up. Absolutely, he did. There were brothers and sisters that he had. Incidentally, the Bible lets us know that early on when the angel came and said, you're, you're going to call Jesus the firstborn son. Doesn't that automatically imply there's going to be others? Right? Um, also, the Catholic Church has a doctrine that we don't subscribe to. We don't accept it, but that is the perpetual virginity of Mary. Boy, that sounds getting rough. When, um, when, when they use the rosary or when they offer prayers, I've seen this more on TV than anywhere else, but often you'll hear this phrase, Mary, Mother of God. And, and, and actually, Catholic dogma or Catholic teaching teaches that not only was Mary a virgin when she gave birth to Christ, but she remained a virgin for the rest of her life. Bible doesn't teach that. 
um, it's quite a quite an interesting thing, and that, and you you know very well that the Catholics really exalt Mary, almost to almost equal to or more so than Christ, uh, and it it comes from the belief and the teaching that they have been um, instructed that Mary was not only a virgin at the birth of Christ, but perpetually from then on. They will deny that these were brothers and sisters. They will tell you this didn't happen. Uh, but uh, the Bible says that, that indeed there were other children. Mark 6, verse 3. Whoever finds it can read it. So there are two gospel writers that record the fact that Jesus had brothers and sisters. In John 7, if you'll turn with me there, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. John 7, 1 through 5. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Now let's, let's take just a moment and <laughs> let's take just a moment and imagine what it would have been like in that household. Now Jesus is the Messiah. He's performing miracles, he's raising the dead, he's doing all these things, and he's got brothers and sisters at home who think he's nuts. And there, and you know, as I read that, it, it occurred to me just now as I was reading, um, depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one does anything in secret while he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. That sounds like something the Jews would have been saying before they crucified him. Right? So he was, he was getting this criticism at home from his siblings. Not only out in, in the world from others. Now, I, I, I make it a point. I belabor that point, And I do it for a reason. Because we're going to turn to Acts 15 now. 
And, well, I'll tell you, before we do that, before we do that, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7. Yes, 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to start, um, I'm going to start at verse 1. This is an appropriate scripture. Sunday was Easter. We're coming up uh, uh, on... Um, We've just talked about the resurrection, so this is an appropriate time to read this. First Corinthians 15, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3, here's where it picks up. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. Before I go any farther, somebody tell me the significance of the fact that Jesus would have appeared to Peter, Simon Peter, Cephas, would have appeared to him first after the resurrection. Okay, and, and Jesus would have wanted to do what? It was a... Don't you imagine it was a very tender moment when the Lord comes to Peter and embraces him, says, I forgive you, Peter. It's all right. Um, and then he appeared to the twelve. And then the Bible says, after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part, or the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Verse 7. After that, he was seen by James. Uh oh. And then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. Now, you think about that verse 7. We probably should talk about verse 7 as, as much as in the past we've ever talked about verse 5, where Jesus appeared to Peter, Simon Peter. And what a precious meeting that must have been. What about when Jesus appeared to James, his brother? James, just a few days ago, had been laughing and mocking and he and all the other brothers ridiculing and scorning the Lord. Why don't you go do your thing? Put on a show for him if you really who you say you are. And now Jesus appears to James. And then it says the apostles again. I think that's very noteworthy, especially when we began to see the, the great change that has occurred in the book of Acts. Let's turn to the book of Acts now. Acts one fourteen. 
Now, if we're in Acts chapter 1, we are before Pentecost or after? Acts chapter 1 is before Pentecost. And the Bible says, beginning at verse 12, they're in the upper room. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, there's another one of the Jameses, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James, who we already talked about. Verse 14 says, These all continued in one accord, with one accord, in prayer and supplication, with the women and... Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. What has happened? What has happened since the resurrection? What has happened since Jesus went to see James? They've all come together. There's been a revival in the home front there, right? Now, James is a believer, the other brothers are believers, and they're all there together on the day of Pentecost, or before the day of Pentecost, in the upper room, there they are, where just a few weeks earlier they were mocking him and making fun of him. So now they're, they're believers, they're followers. Then when you turn, and here's where I think it really gets interesting as far as our discussion tonight. When we turn to Acts chapter 15, And this is years later. Maybe 15, 20 years has passed now. And there is this movement taking place to take the gospel now to Gentiles, not just Jews. And it's creating a problem in the church. Because the Jews didn't think the Gentiles should be saved. They're just dogs. And and you preach the gospel to them and they become believers well, at least if they're going to be a part of the group we're in, they're going to have to do what we do. They're going to have to do it like we do it. They're going to have to be circumcised, and they're going to have to keep the law, and they're going to have to do all these things. And, it, and of course, they didn't want to do that. They weren't becoming Jewish. They were becoming Christ followers. So when the church began to grow and these two groups were there, the Jews and the Gentiles, there was a tussle. There was a... Great disagreement. It went on and on and on. And finally, it came to the point where they got together. The The title over chapter 15 in my Bible is Conflict Over Circumcision. And we're not going to take the time to read this entire passage. But the point, the point that I would like to make, I'm going to begin reading in verse 12. As they all came together to talk about this thing. The Jews and the Gentiles coming together. What are the Gentiles going to have to do? Are they going to have to do it like we do it? Verse 12 says, Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul. Because Barnabas and Paul had been preaching to the Gentiles. Gentiles have been coming to, the, coming to the Lord like crazy. Then all the multitude kept silent. Listen to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they became silent, James answered saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name 
And with this, the words of the prophets agree. And he just continues all the way down to verse 19. James says, Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from things strangled, and from blood. But all the other things that the Jews had to do, like circumcision, no, they don't have to do that. No, they're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not becoming Jewish. They don't, they're not obligated to do all of that. Who made that statement? It was. It did. He was, he was, he was bold in his faith. And when you get to the book of James and start reading through that, he is not, he is not messing around. And he is not wimpy. He's laying it on the table. He's known as being a plain speaker uh, and, and just saying what's on his heart. But here's a, a couple of other things before we actually get into the book of James um, that I'd like for us to know about James. There is a... The, actually, if you would write this on there. James the... Anybody fill that blank in for me? What's he known as? James the... Not the book itself, but the man. James the... He's known as James the Just. History records him as being James the Just or James the Righteous. He has that designation. He has that reputation. He has that legacy. He's known as James the Just. In fact, James was such a, a godly man, such a, a follower of, of the law, and loved God to the point that he was known, even early on, as going to the temple so often to pray that his knees were like what? You've heard this. Camel's knees. He has the reputation of being such a prayer, prayer, prayer warrior, praying man, that his knees were calloused like camel's knees because of the time he spent in prayer. Now, that's what history says about James. James, the just, and James, the praying man. And so then you could see... Now, let's pause here for just a minute because there's an interesting dynamic here. Do you know, is it not true that when we come to Christ, all of us come with our past, our baggage? We see things a little differently. Is that not true? Let me ask you this. Did the Apostle Paul, before he became Paul, before he became a Christian, did the Apostle Paul have a zeal for God? Absolutely. He did, didn't he? But he was missing a few things, wasn't he? Okay. I think the same thing can be said for James. We don't have this open window into his heart, but we know his reputation already was James the Just. And being a praying man. And somehow or another, this man, who was the brother of our Lord, but an opponent of the Christ when he was walking this earth, somehow rose from obscurity to be the leader in this early church. And standing up and saying, my decision is, this is what I've decided. My judgment is this. And then they wrote this document and had it dispersed throughout the whole church. To, to everybody, all over the place. This is the way we're going to do it. 
That's amazing, is it not? I mean, it wasn't one of the apostles that was chosen to be the leader. It was this this guy that wasn't even saved when Jesus was crucified. Didn't even see who Jesus was. But when he came to Christ, or when Christ came to him, I should say, after the resurrection, he was smart enough to become a believer and accept the truth of the gospel. And so then, with, with that in mind, we turn to James chapter 1, and we read this first verse in James chapter 1. This is the way he introduces himself. Now, you might think he would say, James, the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. None of that. None of that. No, he starts out by saying in verse 1, James, a bondservant of God, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You would think maybe he had to swallow hard to say that, but I don't think he did. I think he had already come to such a revelation now of who Christ was, and he realized what this was all about. He saw it as a privilege to say, I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse, well, in the latter part of verse 1, who is he writing to? Okay, that sounds good. The twelve tribes, but what does that mean? Who was he writing to? He was writing to Jewish Christians. He was writing to people who had turned to Christ like on the day of Pentecost. How many were converted? 3,000. And then three or four, or just a chapter or two later, just 5,000 more come. So the Jews, and remember when Peter's preaching this sermon, he stands up in front of these people on the day of Pentecost and and. I love to read this and imagine him because the Bible says he looks at them and, and he, it's almost as if he points his finger at who he's preaching to, which I don't like to do that, but I'm, I'm going to illustrate it. Peter was preaching to them and he says, the Lord Jesus who you crucified, the Lord Jesus who you killed, that's the way he preached that message that day. And the Bible says their hearts were gripped with conviction what must we do to be saved? And they turned to the Lord. So the early church was, the early church was Jewish. Jews who had come to Christ. Jews who had accepted the Messiah. And so when we read here, now the church has got its Jews and its Gentiles and years have passed and now James feels compelled to write this letter to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. That is to his Jewish brethren. Because there are some things there he feels like he needs to express to them. And he has the clout, the influence to do it because of who he is. They know him. He's James the Just. He's the praying man with callous knees. He's a man with some integrity and experience. And they've got confidence in him. So, the <laughs> 20 minutes we have left. Um, let's, let's rush through some of this. And in chapter one, I love the way this begins because it's something that's so counterintuitive that, that James says. He says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. How many of you like to count it all joy when trouble comes? 
Think about it. Now, his instruction to the Jewish Christians was this. Count it all joy. Now, he didn't say laugh a little silly giggle and put on a front. That's not what he's talking about. He says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Knowing. Could everybody say knowing? Count it all joy when you fall into various trials because you understand that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, mature, lacking nothing. Now, that lets us know, if you read that and will accept what it says, that lets us know there is a divine purpose in our troubles. We can grow through our troubles. We become more like Jesus through our troubles. When difficulty comes our way, if we will respond to it in the proper way, it can be good for us. We grow. I, I learned something many years ago when I was in biology in college. I never understood this before. It makes perfect sense, but I never had known it. When, when you go to the gym and you begin to lift weights, let's, let's say 100 pounds. Well, I probably couldn't start at 100 pounds now, but... 25. 25. <laughs> now, wait a minute. I'm not 90, Eddie. <laughs> okay. You, you take a 50-pound sack of potatoes, okay? And you try to lift it over your head. Okay, I could still do that, that, but, but you know, you'd strain and you, and you get up and you try to hold it and balance it and all that. But as you do that, because you're not accustomed to do it, it's 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 outside your comfort zone, so you're really pushing to put that weight up. How many of you realize that after you do something you haven't done in a while, you have sore muscles? Do you know why? You know why you have sore muscles? Because in your, for instance, in your biceps, in your legs, wherever, whenever you do that, you have literally ripped muscle. Muscle tissue in your body, you have literally stretched it to the point that it has it has broken certain fibers. And now those fibers have to heal again and come back together. But as it does that, it does what? It builds mus- It builds more muscle. And the more you do that, the more muscle that you... Tear, it sounds terrible. Literally, that's what's happening. I'm, now, we're not talking about rips and tears of big... It's, it's just like on the cellular level. You're, you're tearing and stretching this muscle, and it makes you sore, but it grows as a result of that, as it heals and comes back together, and, and your muscles get bigger, and you get stronger and able to push more up. We know that's the way it works, right? The more you lift it, the easier it gets. Then you can increase the weight, and the more you do it, the easier it gets. Well, that's what this is saying. The purpose of the trials and difficulties we have in our life is not to hinder us or to hurt us, but to make us more what God wants us to be. And so his advice, his counsel, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So he says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing, now I, I, I want to say again, this is not a silly little laugh and being, being ridiculous about it. It's in your heart you have a peace because you know God is in control. 
and God is up to something, and God's going to be doing something, and He's going to see you through, and you you patiently wait on that because your confidence is in Him. So you count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And as this process takes place, it's like the person who's lifting weights. Then you become perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You get stronger and more mature and more like Christ. Did, does not the Bible teach us that Jesus became... Jesus fulfilled what he needed to do. He became perfect. He completed everything by his suffering, the Bible says. And we're supposed to to understand that and follow his example and not try to avoid the difficulties um, that arise and the, the things that we go through. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, verse 5 says, who gives to all liberally and without reproach. It's a sad, sad thing. And, and we could give so many examples of that. The friendship with the world. If we want to fit in with the world, we want to get along with the world, we want to fraternize with the world, if you will, uh, that puts us in a very precarious situation with the Lord, according to this. Verse 7 in the same chapter says, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. I, I just think, I think that's a verse that we should not overlook. First, submit to God, and then resist the devil, and He will flee from you. If you resist the devil all day long, but you haven't submitted to God, what's that going to get you? Yeah, you're not going to you're not going to make any progress at all. First, submit to God. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if we could have a revival of submitting to God in the church? I mean, really, just people just absolutely want to please God more than they want anything else. They want to submit to the Lordship of Christ more than anything else. Wow. Verse 11 says, Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. How many times do churches, congregations, shoot themselves in the foot? By not taking that verse to, to mind. Do not speak evil of one another, brother. Verse 9 says in chapter 5, Do not grumble against one another, brethren. I remember the first church I, I served. This has been almost 40 years ago now. I still remember who said it. And I was, I was preaching on scriptures like through James in different places about the dangers of the tongue and so forth. Um, something we'll probably visit on Sunday morning in light of the cross uh, and the fact that James is our assigned scripture. And um, this gentleman came up to me after church and said, if I never talked about the things you talked about this morning, I'd never have anything to say. And I said, that's probably a good idea. <laughs> I mean, he, I mean, when you, when you get through... Talking about people and speaking evil of one another and grumbling against people. Take that away from most people's vocabulary. They'd be a person of few words, wouldn't they? That's kind of the way it is. Incidentally, that person is a very dear friend today. So it's not we had words. It's just that he was acknowledging he had a problem is what he was doing. And as we bring it to a close, the very last verse in James chapter 5, verse 20. This is so important. 
He who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death. That's it right there. I don't, I don't even want to go farther or past that. I just want to read that again. He who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death. Who would that verse be applicable to? Pardon me? Everybody. All of us. And incidentally, the book of James wasn't written just to preachers or just to teachers or just to the men. It was written for all of us, really, because it's included in the Word of God. Is that not a, is that not a, a gem of a piece of advice? He who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death. And every one of us should be diligent to do that. How often do we see people, sometimes people that we love, and we see them in their sinful path, and we, we haven't, in love, gone to them to tell them the truth or to try to turn them around and come to, to where they need to be. So that's an assignment that we have, to turn a sinner from... Now, you don't do that by nagging and complaining. Amen? We're talking about doing this in, in a godly way, sometimes maybe with tears in your eyes. With a, a motive for, if this person, in your mind, you're thinking, if this person doesn't change, they're going to end up in hell. And so because of that, I've got to do something. And as you try to talk to them and convince them that there's a God who loves them, um, we can make a big difference. I'm convinced that the Lord wants there to be empty places in hell because of what we have done. Empty places in hell because we have led people to Christ. If we hadn't done it, they would have been in eternal punishment. Because of what we did, they can be saved. I believe that. Anybody else believe it? Amen. Before we begin tonight, um, Lisa Revis came to me and said that... Uh, for months now, many months, we've been praying for Janie Lassiter. Janie Lassiter is Lisa's aunt. And uh, she is now getting very near death. It looks like down to the last days. And uh, Lisa asked that we pray for Janie and for her daughter, who was her primary caregiver there at the house, that the Lord would be with them, comfort them during these last days. Anyone else have a request you'd like to share? Teresa.